much for joining us on this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Professor Peter Libby. Peter, would you be able to start by giving us an introduction to where you're working and what uh, field you're working in? Uh, sure, James. Thank you very much for including me in this series. I am the Malakoff Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and uh, practice cardiology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, both in Boston. And um, Peter, you've long been a, a pioneer of research in vascular biology and have uh, really led on the, the whole idea of inflammation being crucial in atherosclerosis. I just really wanted to get you on the podcast to give us an update in how things have changed perhaps over the last five years. What do we mean by inflammation in atherosclerosis these days? What are the main players in this process? Right, well, inflammation was actually recognized by the ancients. So it was uh, Celsus in the first century AD who enunciated the cardinal signs of inflammation that we all learned to recite beautifully when we were students. Um, you know, rubor, tumor, dolor. And I believe it was Virchow in the 19th century who added uh, a loss of function uh, to the 2,000-year-old uh, uh, punch list of Celsus. And that's relevant to atherosclerosis because Virchow was applying the state of the art and his uh, incisive uh, reasoning to the study of pathology. And in his uh, lectures on atherosclerosis that were uh, given in the mid-19th century, he clearly enunciated that there was a role for inflammation in atherosclerosis. He even went on and spoke about proliferation of the cells of the lining of the artery and uh, about death of the cells in the artery. You know, I, I often uh, tell my students that the people in the 19th century were just as smart as we are, but they had fewer distractions in terms of regulatory issues and grant writing. And they also probably took more vacations than we were and were quite productive. Uh, and able to use deductive reasoning and simple tools to come to startling mo mod startlingly modern conclusions. I tell my students that the aniline dyes that were developed by the chemical industry, much of it in Germany in the 19th century, were enabling to 19th century science the way that uh, restriction enzymes were to the development of molecular biology. And by um, learning to stain tissue sections with these uh, various dyes that were the product of the chemical industry, uh, they were able to make these observations and then without the experimental tools that we have today, deductively arrive at the role of inflammation as a driver of atherosclerosis. Now, that was forgotten serially, but periodically rediscovered. You know, um, Howard Florey, uh, when he was at Oxford, after having cured infectious disease in principle by uh, making the production of penicillin um, practical, uh, turned his attention to atherosclerosis. And I'm sure that you are aware of the uh, fantastic work that he did with his colleague Poole mm. uh, in 1958, where he clearly showed an intact endothelium with uh, adherent mononuclear phagocytes uh, as an early step in response to cholesterol feeding in rabbits. So. Um, Flory rediscovered a century later what Virchow had uh, clearly uh, set forth in the mid-19th century. And now we've, of course, uh, through your own works and, and works of many others around the world, we've come to understand the role of, of plaque rupture and, and plaque erosion in, in triggering clinical events. 
There seems to have been some shift recently in the prominence of, of plaque erosion as a driver for clinical events. Are you able to, to talk to that at all? Well, I think that um, the inroads that we've made against traditional risk factors, including hypertension and smoking and secondhand smoke, and also, very importantly, the introduction of effective LDL-lowering therapies, such as the statins, has actually begun to change the nature of human disease. And hand-in-hand hand with this uh, change in the substrate, the atheromatous plaque, uh, there's a change in the demographics of people who are developing acute coronary syndromes, ACS, these days. And um, there's also a change in the clinical presentation. And uh, my contention is, our working hypothesis, is that in the statin era, in the era of uh, tighter control of traditional risk factors, uh, that superficial erosion is becoming more important as a contributor to the residual risk at a time when we can drive the LDL down to uh, 0.7 millimoles or below. Uh, so I think that uh, we're succeeding in changing the disease, but we haven't wiped it out. And that's where I think that the mechanism of ACS uh, due to superficial erosion and inflammation as a novel target for therapy comes to the fore. And speak, speaking of which, you've been a, a prominent uh, protagonist and investigator with, with uh, a colleague of yours, Professor Paul Ridka, who's, of course, recently published the, the fabulous Cantor study, and even more data has emerged at the recent AHA meeting. Are you able to talk a little bit about uh, how gratifying it was that, that Cantos was positive and, and uh, showed that uh, lowering inflammation actually did reduce clinical events. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of that study and uh, what you think it will be? Right, so it's enormously gratifying as, as you surmised. Uh, so I spent many years working in cell culture and with experimental animals and uh, publishing many papers about the theory of inflammation and producing experimental evidence that inflammation is an important contributor to cardiovascular disease and atherosclerotic events in particular. And I reached a point in my career where I thought, you know, I'm a, a practicing clinical cardiologist and my mission is actually to try and translate some of this work to the clinic. And uh, so I proposed to Novartis, uh, who had an orphan drug that neutralizes IL-1 beta, uh, that we test the hypothesis that I published back in 1986 that interleukin-1 was involved in atherogenesis and uh, was able to interest uh, Novartis into supporting a trial. Uh, I brought Dr. Ritker uh, on board, of course, because I'm not a clinical trialist, but uh, I'm permitted by my colleagues to participate in the conduct of large-scale clinical trials. And together, uh, Dr. Ritker and I went to Basel and led our case, and after a successful phase two study, uh, we were very, very uh, grateful and pleased that Novartis was able to uh, support this uh, study, which really was uh, started at our initiative uh, to test the inflammatory hypothesis by targeting interleukin-1 beta with a monoclonal antibody. And uh, so the first conversation that I had with Novartis about Cantos was in October of 2000. 2009, we um, went to Basel together in February of 2010 and started the study in 2011. And I was, of course, pleased as punch uh, when Paul was able to get on the big stage at the ESC and present as a hotline 
in the end of August 2017, uh, the results of Cantos that showed a 15% reduction in the primary endpoint of hard major adverse cardiovascular events, uh, death, cardiovascular death, uh, myocardial infarction or stroke with the uh, treatment with the monoclonal antibody. So what Dr. Richter and the study statistician, Dr. Bob Glynn did, uh, was to look at the individuals who responded to therapy. Now, to get into Cantos, the uh, admission criteria, the entrance criteria, were to have had a myocardial infarction, to be in the stable phase at least a month after the index event, and to be fully equilibrated on a contemporary, uh, very powerful standard of care regimen, including high-dose statins. But the patients enrolled in Cantos had an indication of residual inflammation as shown by a C-reactive protein measured with a high sensitivity assay that was uh, greater than two milligrams per liter. So we selected an inflamed group, we gave them an anti-inflammatory therapy, and the primary endpoint was positive. Now, canakinumab, which is the antibody that we used, has a very long half-life. It can be given just four times a year. So what Dr. Glynn and Dr. Ritker did in their recent analysis was to look at individuals who at the trough of their first dose of kenakinumab got a response below median uh, to the uh, anti-IL-1 beta antibody as measured by C-reactive protein or uh, above that. And they, they converged on a cut point of two milligrams per liter. Um, and what they found was that those who got below that uh, derived an even greater benefit, about a 25% reduction in the primary endpoint. And those that didn't respond so well to the drug uh, had a much more modest effect that actually was not statistically significant. And I think the most important part of this um, on-treatment analysis was the finding that there was a reduction in total mortality and cardiovascular mortality of 31%. Now, obviously, an on-treatment analysis like this uh, loses the power of randomization. And in order to control for potential confounders, uh, Dr. Ritker and Dr. Grin did seven different sensitivity analyses, and it turned out that the finding was watertight. It could not be attributed in any way to residual confounding. So this was a very gratifying moment, sort of like in Jupiter when we found in primary prevention uh, that selecting patients for statin therapy by their inflammatory status could save lives. Uh, it looks like when we deploy with two layers of personalization, uh, this biological uh, therapy that targets inflammation, we may be able to save lives as well. Yeah, it really is. It really is fascinating. And it's an interesting way of selecting which patients will eventually receive the drug almost a you know, you have one dose, uh, if you respond within a certain amount of time, you carry on. If not, you stop and maybe move on to the next uh, option. And that brings me to, to, to wrap up really talking about the, the CERT trial, another study uh, with which you're closely involved. Can you talk a little bit about that and where we are in terms of uh, when that might be wrapping up? The use of low-dose weekly methotrexate on the order of 15 to 25 milligrams per week has transformed the practice of rheumatology and uh, some aspects of dermatology as well. And if you look at the observational data, it's striking how the reduction in cardiovascular endpoints seems to line up. And 
Of course, those are studies where cardiovascular endpoints were not adjudicated up to our standards, uh, nor was that a pre-specified hypothesis. So uh, Dr. Ritker, uh, with his usual energy and perseverance, uh, was able to convince the U.S. National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute to fund a 7,000-person study of uh, individuals uh, with cardiovascular risk or established cardiovascular disease uh, with diabetes or metabolic syndrome. Uh, thus carrying a major component of inflammation, and uh, randomize them to low-dose weekly methotrexate or not. There's about 4,700 patients enrolled so far. This trial, because it's funded by the North American agencies, is conducted only in U.S. and Canada, and um, as opposed to Cantos, by the way, which was in almost 40 countries, and Jupiter as well. Uh, so uh, CERT is uh, doing very well. And uh, we hope in a couple of years to be able to answer the question of whether a low-cost generic drug uh, can help individuals. The entry criteria are a bit distinct from the Cantos trial, as I described, uh, but this could potentially give us another arrow in our quiver of direct anti-inflammatory therapies that do not alter the lipid profile substantially. Fantastic. And perhaps in the last one minute, we can... I can briefly ask you, what are the, the main unanswered questions uh, in your mind uh, in atherosclerosis research? Well, I'm particularly uh, keen on exploring uh, an observation that was originated by my close colleague and uh, neighbor at Brigham Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Dr. Ben Ebert, uh, who together with uh, a brilliant uh, postdoctoral fellow now, uh, uh, independent at Stanford, uh, Siddhartha Jaiswal, made the observation that uh, when you have clones of leukocytes floating around in your bloodstream that have arisen because of somatic acquired mutations in bone marrow stem cells, that you not only have an enhanced risk of leukemia, but an actually much greater contributor to uh, cardiovascular events, a very potent novel risk factor. And we're hot on the trail with uh, Dr. Ebert and his crew of trying to learn more about the basic biology of why it is that these leukocyte clones uh, contribute to markedly enhanced cardiovascular risk. You know, a twofold enrichment, fully adjusted in hazard ratio for cardiovascular events if you have one of these clones. And there's really only four common mutations that give rise to these clones, uh, which are one step on the way to acute leukemia, but not there by any means. And uh, we have uh, strong, strong indications, uh, some of which we've already published, uh, that uh, regulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines are part of the answer to why having these abnormal clones of, uh, of mutant leukocytes in our bloodstream as we age uh, can contribute to atherosclerosis. So there's a new window uh, that will give us new insight into pathophysiology and potentially new targets for therapy. Fantastic. Well, that's a, a really great overview of the whole subject area. Uh, I want to thank you very much for your time, uh, Professor Libby. I know you're extremely busy, and uh, I will uh, put links to your own personal website at Harvard uh, for everybody to go and enjoy. Thanks very much indeed, Peter. Thank you very much for having me.